Hello and welcome to this month's episode of the London Rep podcast. My name is Leafia Darko. I am the founder and artistic director of the London Rep. We are a production company that makes work for the stage and screen and we specialise in telling the untold stories of people of colour across 2,000 years of history. Um, We also make work that focuses on working class stories and that offers great parts for women. This podcast is designed to continue the conversations that our work starts by speaking to people from theatre, film and the wider arts communities um, about their journeys through the arts, uh, what inspires them, any tips or tricks or hacks that they might have, any mindsets that that they use to weather life as, as a creative. Um, and our focus is talking to people from traditionally underrepresented backgrounds. Um, today our guest is Jay Chakravorty. Um, Jay is a musician who is a band member in five or six different bands and he writes music for plays, adverts and films. He's self-taught and based in London and also produces um, as well, Uh, clever guy. Um, His modern classical album will be released next year on Unperceived Records. Uh, We'll give a shout out when when that's available across our social media. So yeah, stay tuned to to us for that. Um, And yeah, we just sat down and chatted about music. I have a background in music as well. Um, We talk a lot about what it's like to be um, people of colour in the arts and people of colour in music in particular, as well as about our favourite bands and our experiences at music festivals. We had a great time recording this. Um, So yeah, here's this month's episode. Hope you enjoy. Hey, Jay Chakravorty. Hello. Welcome to the London Rep podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Full disclosure, we've been on like a 20 minute <laughs> trek um, around the building we're in to try and find a nice quiet little corner to have our chit chat yeah. and we've made ourselves at home in here so hopefully you can hear us okay and everything. Um, yeah, let's start at the very beginning. Jay is a musician and we've been working at the Globe together on Henry VI and Richard III and we've always had like pretty epic green room banter and stuff about all sorts of nerdy music things and I thought oh it'd just be really cool to have you on and we can share your your insight and your wit with (laughs) other people I made that sound ironic I don't mean it (laughs) really sounded sarcastic (laughs) it really did that was such a mean spiteful way to start the episode but on the bright side it's like uphill from here now um so yeah um I always ask people, I guess, like where they started because I don't have a cleverer way to yeah, open I mean, the conversation. It's, it's all right, isn't it? Yeah, As in yeah, this go. Exactly. Um, so, yeah, wh- how did you um, get into to doing music? Like, maybe what's your earliest memory of doing that? Uh, I, I, got given, uh, I got given... I had piano lessons for maybe a month, maybe a month and a half when I was about eight. And I hated it so much that I thought, well, that's me and music done. Like, I, I hate this. Um, and we always had a piano at my house because I think my dad wanted me not to be a professional musician uh, because that wasn't a possibility in my world, uh, but to have music as like a cultural thing, like you should know how to play an instrument. Um, so I decided that I hated um, learning music, like really early on. And then I had a friend at school called Charles Plummer, 
Uh, hi Charles. Hi Charles. I haven't spoken to him for like 25 years. But yeah, hi Charles. Um, and his brother Ed was seriously into metal, and his dad was like into 60s and 70s guitar music, and he mm-hmm. had a couple of guitars in the house. And I remember going round, uh, and me and Charles played on his guitars. And literally, as soon as I picked it up, I was like, oh, this. This is what I want to do with the rest of my time on the planet. Like, this is definitely it. Um, and then I just, I begged my parents to get me a guitar for Christmas that year, I think. Thinking, like, they're going to get me an electric guitar and I am going to be Hendrix and it's going to be amazing. And I think they'd had a conversation with each other and um, my dad's whole thing about, like, classical music is the only music. Um, <laughs> I ended up getting a uh, a three quarter size classical guitar that Christmas. Nice. Just being like, oh, thanks, but also this wasn't it. not what I wanted. <laughs> so I, I learned loads of um, basically like rock songs on classical guitar until I think the next year I begged for an electric guitar and got got one. I think at every stage my parents were like, this he's going to grow up with this. This is not a thing at all. <laughs> um, and I never did um, but then like you're asking like how I became a musician that was just me falling in love with playing music I becoming a musician like I said wasn't really a thing that you could do in my family um, my dad's um, my dad's an immigrant from India and the way he got out of kind of a bit of poverty and that sort of thing was through education he went to university, he got a medical degree and he came over in like 1969 and that was his way of kind of elevating uh, and my mum was born into like a working class family in Wales, all of her brothers uh, were coal miners, um, that kind of thing and then she uh, became a nurse and that's how she got herself out of that and that's how my parents met. Um, oh, oh really? Like yeah, a doctor yeah, and a nurse? Doctor and nurse yeah. <laughs> In Merthyrville <laughs> Hospital, yeah, that's right. So, like, the way that you elevate yourself in my family is you get educated mm. and you get a job that um, you might not like but pays you money. So, mm. I remember my dad saying, like, so many times, this is like a catchphrase for a decade, there's only one Mick Jagger, Jay. <laughs> and he's already taken. Yeah, and, he, <laughs> uh, you know, and he's Mick Jagger. So, sure, keep music as, like, a, a hobby, but... There's only one McJake. I don't know why you're trying to make a living out of this, essentially. Um, so I didn't... And obviously, the piano lessons left me hating being taught music. So I've come up music for, through a really weird kind of direction of... Um, I have no teaching behind me. Everything that I play, I play kind of wrong. But... <laughs> Well strong enough, and rough. I think. Yeah. No, I think that's pretty amazing. And but I, um, I relate to so much of what you said. I, I, I feel like sometimes when I do these, I have like some talking points to get through. Mm. But I feel like we should just chat how we normally do. Okay. Um, so if this comes out in a weird order, forgive me, whoever's listening. Um, it's just a chat. Yeah, just it's a fun. chat. Um, but yeah, I relate to a lot of that. I, um, uh, I too had a really like complicated relationship with the piano right. when I was little and it was one of those things that I just didn't I didn't get the either the instrument or the teaching of it and had this huge thing where 
Um, my sister was really good at it very fast, like a very, like, um, the, all the classical kind of way of doing things. And she'd already, like, started composing little things when before we had lessons. Oh, wow, okay. um, when, <laughs> when we were, like, five or six, she started making things up with both hands on the piano. Yeah. And so she was very good at it. And then I sort of, being siblings and especially twins, you sort of get shoved in the same thing, really, because I think it's just easier. Yeah. Um, and so I was sent along as well. And I think I liked the piano, but I hated the teacher who was... The, there are some really odd people who who ad- advertise as music ah, teachers, yeah. and they're just you're sort of just left alone with these individuals who, who who you're kind of a bit like. In hindsight, were they were they people that should have been yeah. around? Is there like no board of regulation for this? For who this is this shit? person that you dropped me off for like a half an hour? Yeah. Like, yeah, I won't say what his name was, but he was like, I feel like if I wrote now like a monologue of that teacher like the sort of thing he did people would be like that person doesn't exist he used to only wear in 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 our british weather in like january or whatever he'd only wear like hawaiian sort of um you know the shirts you wear on holiday the brightly colored ones like half unbuttoned with a massive gold medallion and like chest hair coming through and he he was a big like coffer because he smoked like 90 cigarettes a day everything in his house smelt and tasted of alcohol everything if he offered you a glass of juice that the glass tasted of alcohol if you oh, blew your nose the tissue alcohol <laughs> right um, and we used to go home and be like blah blah's house smells like board pen because the only other place we'd smell alcohol was you know this um, the board pen at school right and our parents were like nonsense you know he's an educated man like he knows yeah, like, like that's um, the pinnacle. Yeah. Like he's an Literally, <laughs> and luckily he he didn't. You know, there are obviously individuals who who are really really inappropriate with children, but he wasn't that. He was just probably not a person to spend yeah. your time around as an eight year old. He was yeah. quite terrifying, and I didn't get on well with him at all. And um, he he was a bit like, you know, your sister's really good. You're pretty terrible at this. And I'm like, <laughs> I, I know, that's right? What you need, so you exactly. Great to your teacher. Sister at all points. Yeah, and then I went home, and my my. Um, my grandma was a bit like, why can't you play it? Like, I was like, I don't know, I'm trying my best. And she was like, well, if you're not going to do it, you know, properly uh, quit. And I think in my rage, I was like, fine, I quit. And she was like, okay. <laughs> and that was the last oh, time yeah. I ever went to his house. And at the time I felt really like, yeah. And then after I was like, oh, I quite, I did sort of enjoy what I was doing though on it. Yeah. Um, but it was, I think, not necessarily a natural fit. I think I could have learned yeah. to sort of, figure my way around the keyboard but it wasn't something I I looked at and had this instinct right so that's what I ended up doing so like I had those lessons and I remember like one of the first lessons I had the teacher put in front of me uh, the dots for probably Moonlight Sonata it was it was something like that mm-hmm. um, and was just like so there you go uh, just <laughs> see how far we get with this and I was like well I've literally never seen notation before and so I just started like, I remember just pressing my fingers on my keys and she was like, I think Beethoven's turning in his grave. And I felt, even at, like an eight year old, I felt like saying, well, you need to teach me. This isn't like, I, I don't have knowledge. Like you need to teach me. And so I've always kind of hated notation as well. That's another but, thing. Yeah, <laughs> it's always, I have a difficult, I have a difficult relationship with, with dots in that um, I sort of eventually did learn to read them, but the instrument I started out on first was the guitar. Mm-hmm. And I started with a guy who was very much like a rock guy. And yeah. I was about, it was a couple of weeks before my like sixth birthday and I had like maybe a quarter size guitar, quite literally from the Argos catalog. Yeah, yeah. It probably 
I don't even, maybe 60 quid is even more than it cost, I don't know. Um, and he would he would go, like um, arrange things like Postman Pat for me and stuff like right. that, but he would do it in like a uh, tab. And so I was with him till I was about nine, and then my parents found out, and I don't know how they found out, they found out there were like guitar concertos, and you could do it like classically and all this stuff, you know. Yeah. And then they were like, you're doing that! And I was like, oh! So then I, I switched to classical and we had to go through about like nine different teachers to find one that would take me because they were all like no if you've if you've not started on classical you'll never be able to change what? um yeah they were like How it's old were you? nine so i've been doing it for three years That's and like absurd. they kept like it's a it's a it, it, it's a shame that i don't take people who've not um who've started with acoustic you know you're you, ruined you, now yeah you're ruined <laughs> you're too old go home grandma like yeah That's it was insane. like yeah and so they kept going oh it's a shame you know, she's talented at the guitar, but it's a shame she didn't start out right, basically was the thing. Yeah. yeah. And then and then a guy who was like retired, and in and I think he was a bit of a hippie in like the sixties, and he had all these like stories of like a Volkswagen Beetle he used to travel around like Eastern European and stuff like that. Right. And I kind of don't know how he came across classical guitar, because you'd sort of think he was maybe more into like rock music or something. Fish. But yeah, when I met <laughs> when I met him, he was like in his 60s and uh smoked a pipe and had like all these squirrels he'd made friends with in his back garden and just sort of wanted something to do because he was retired yeah and he was like well i'll do it for like five pounds an hour this was like 1999 or something because i was like nine and then um so i went with him and he took he sort of transitioned me from tab to dots yeah but it was a bit ad hoc and it was a bit, he, he, he wasn't like doing it as in like, I've been to conservatoire for classical guitar and I've got that. He was, he did know some things. He, he did like the Trinity kind of initial grade book or whatever. Yeah. But it was like a really, it's, a, it's sort of like being, I don't know, maybe, I mean, this hasn't happened to me, but I imagine if you've started writing like left-handed and sometimes I make you write right-handed or so, something yeah. that feels a bit, a bit odd. Um, and I don't think I ever really, in my time after that at conservatoire, which I left when I was 19, I don't think I ever reconciled the two, yeah, the two things, sure. actually. I think I was never really comfortable reading dots, but I'd forgotten how to read tab. Yeah. So I was cheating and you do, you doing a lot by ear and just sort of not really telling anybody. Yeah. Uh, oh, I know <laughs> like, that feeling. Like, so, I don't so, do notation or tab. Yeah. So I'm just like, I, I, I do everything by ear. And the amount of times I have pretended that I'm not doing everything by ear <laughs> <laughs> is alarming. It's so funny. Uh, but yeah, so I, 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 I don't have any of those like music school things because I never had that. I had like a, a piano in my house that I was just scared of for a long, long time, just hated everything about it. And then once I started playing guitar, I, I was like, oh, there's that other instrument I'd quite like to know how to do it and so I worked out how to play piano from literally sitting at, at the piano with a guitar and being like that's a C major chord on mm -hmm. guitar so where are those notes be? yeah where are those notes yeah. on, on the piano but I think that's like probably the best way to learn actually in that in that I feel like all the people that when I look back all the people that you end up looking at um, or that people who are really like quite zealous about classical music and mm almost to the exclusion of other things, as well-meaning as they are. I can remember quite a few figures like that, like when I was a kid. 
Um, but all the people that they introduce you to, when you like find out about how they became elite at music, yeah. it wasn't through grade exams. Quite often it wasn't through conservatoires. Sometimes later in life they founded conservatoires. But actually it was just from a very young age. They were left alone in a room with a lot of instruments yeah, and had an unusual amount of um, performance opportunities right. at, before the age of about six. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and, and it's often, super interesting that you're saying it's that young. That, yeah, and often it's chamber music right. that, often, that, that they're doing and they either then become composers or like concert soloists or whatever but actually when you look at what made them elite it isn't a lot of the things that yeah are tied to categorizing music in grades or like yep. um this is the module in my degree that i'm doing or let me compete with uh 50 other people on this instrument to be see to seem the most prodigious yeah. i think they're just put in a little bubble where they're allowed to you have the opportunity it's mm -hmm. the same i think with um things that aren't music and it's like einstein kind of taught himself and was famously told at school that he was not that bright uh there's a guy called richard feynman who's a physicist and he's absolutely amazing he's dead but he, he was absolutely <laughs> amazing and like came up with uh, just amazing things that no one really understood and he was a teacher um and he works, there's a thing with him in the Challenger um, um, space shuttle that exploded. He basically said to them, there's this danger that this might explode. And then oh, he had to okay, go back. right, yeah. He's amazing. But he, um, he's one of those people who, I think his dad gave him opportunity to ask like loads and loads of questions and to kind of work out ways of doing things himself. And then when he got, um, I think it was MIT or maybe Harvard or somewhere, he was doing this really high-level mathematics and physics, but he was doing it in a completely different way to the way that the teachers were teaching it. And so, like, no, no, you're doing it wrong. He was like, no, I'm not doing it wrong, and here's why I'm not doing it wrong. And he used to, like, have to walk the teachers through what he was doing. Mm. And it's just being given the opportunity when you're young to kind of work things out yourself is sometimes a much better basis than just being taught, here's, here's like, received wisdom. Learn that and then start thinking for yourself. Like if you come at it from the very, very bottom, I'm just saying this because I've come at it from the very, very bottom. No, like, <laughs> Sometimes it's... like there's an understanding of, like I can't explain my understanding of music very well. I don't have the vocabulary, the musical vocabulary. So like notation or sometimes even like chord extensions. I just don't know what they're called. But stick me in front of an instrument and I'll give it a go. Yeah, like, I'm but, perfectly happy to bash around until I hear something that yeah. sounds right. But that's like 90% of it, I feel. Because I feel like one thing that I feel like the, the classical way can... Like a, a trap, if I guess you're being taught by someone who has a very narrow definition of music, is that you end up with a really wide vocabulary and no application for it. So you sort of know a lot of words, you just can't construct sentences yeah. out of those words. And I feel like, isn't it more, maybe more important to be able to like construct a sentence that you emotionally connect to and that you can share with other people in a way that they get a lot of value from rather than being able to spell lots of complicated musical words that you kind of never leave your practice room and share with anyone because you're so on this mission right, to get yeah. like distinction at something or you're, you're, you have like self-esteem issues and stage fright because the idea is to be the one that gets chosen to do 
right. the, the, to be first chair in your instrument, in the orchestra, or whatever, and that's sort of, it means like your whole, the whole reason you're practicing is becoming about, not about you exploring something with sound, it's about you're, you're, you're kind of, you've got an external eye on you going, what will other people think yeah. my level of excellence is if I do this? Maybe I shouldn't do that, then maybe I should do that. And then when I do that, how should I do it? Maybe I should do it this way. And it becomes oh, very, so it's I've really destructive. Had, like music has been the one thing in my life that I haven't really had any pressure in. Mm. Because I've got so little expectation. <laughs> and I think other people have so little expectation. Yes. And I think, I think being brown has fed into that as well. Yeah, like yeah, people no, don't even expect me to be a musician. Yeah, very no, often right. they expect me to be part of like the management team yeah. or the PR. Do, team. do you get this weird thing happen when you go into like music shops where people just ignore you in the shop or yeah. or assume that they're like, oh, sorry, the entry level instruments are over there. Uh, like, do you get? Because <laughs> I, I have um, a few of those stories. I have had. Uh, I'm sorry, we need to take your backpack off here and, and like. Keep it oh no! A couple of times, yeah. Um, when like other white people just walk past me with backpacks in, and yeah. I'm like, oh, okay, I'm just gonna leave. Actually, yeah. there are other music shops. Literally. Uh, I often have. Um, so being brown, there are acceptable thing, acceptable musics that it's okay to be into. So electronica, essentially, <laughs> it's okay. It's okay for a brown person to be into electronica. So I often um, kind of feel that I'm being herded towards the synths and the drum machines, which I'm super into. <laughs> You're like, but to be like, fair, I, I am actually this brown into, guy yeah, is yeah, into yeah. electronic. <laughs> <laughs> um, but rarely guitars. Mm. Or oh, sometimes it's pianos because they think that, you know, uh, maybe I've, I've been to a conservatory and had lessons and like that kind of vibe. But rarely the guitars and the electric guitars and the basses, like no one really expects it. I've, I've turned up to gigs, like literally holding a synth and a bass, like coming into a gig to, to set up. And I've had uh, a sound guy being like, oh, are you, are you the management team? It's like, well, look at me, mate. Like, <laughs> there's this level of expectation. Uh, and you know, it's born out. I don't know many uh, brown session musicians. Like, mm -hmm. I don't know many. Mm -hmm. I know one, maybe two. And that's, yeah, that's... that's it's lonely, it. no? yeah. yeah, well, it's like, it's a, yeah. it's a really weird thing to... Okay, I am culturally white, which is a super weird thing to say, but my mum's white and my dad's Indian. So my dad's, like, very dark-skinned, my mum's very white. <laughs> uh, and so I'm, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm like light brown, is how I, I would describe <laughs> my colour. And I grew up in South Wales. Um, I was, well this is my memory of it, I don't know if this is literally the truth, but I think it is. Um, me and my sister were the only not white people in our junior school. Um, and then when I got to secondary school, um, I was the only kind of mixed race brown person. Um, so I got a lot of, weirdly got a lot of racism from the actual brown people, rather than the white people. Um, but I grew up culturally white, by which I mean I don't speak my dad's language. Um, we had like various bits of Hindu statues and stuff in the house, but my dad's not religious. And my mum's Catholic and we had like Catholic-y bits in the house as well. Um, 
grow atheist. Like, I grew up just culturally white, but then from the outside, I'm a brown guy who looks mm. a bit Indian, so people assume loads of stuff about you. Mm. Um, and I think one of the things they assume is that you're not going to be like a... You're not going to want to play a guitar through an amplifier with a distortion pedal, because that's not a thing that people see, I don't think. Mm. Which is why, like, podcasts like this, it would have been great if this had existed when I was right. a kid. I was a big motivator in, in doing something like this, yeah. to be like... So, yeah, that anything is possible. I think confidence is, like, a big part of it. Yeah. But confidence is fragile, and not seeing anyone who looks like you or has a story similar to yours doing something you want to do is, like, a massive, like, confidence knock isn't it yeah, yeah yeah I mean I pushed away my brownness for a long time uh, because it was like a it felt like it was a thing that was being culturally enforced from the outside I was like no no no, no I, I'm not that thing that you think I am so I you know just it, like in little things like I, I dyed my hair so it wasn't dark mm -hmm. uh, and like I, so I, I was a singer-songwriter for a while, and I chose a name for that that wasn't my actual name. It was like this weird Spanish word that no one knew how to say, because <laughs> I think yeah, it, a no. lot of it was like a distancing thing. Really? And it's only like in the last couple of years that I've, I've decided, that I've, I've, I've embraced that side of it. Because mm. just being a session musician for like the last, coming up to 10 years now, and just seeing the lack of anyone that's not straight white man mm. everywhere, everywhere. Mm -hmm. It's just like pe face, faces and names, like funny foreign sounding names need to be out there mm. much, much more. Mm -hmm. So like I've, I've got an album coming out next year and it's under my own name. Great. And it's like I'm, I'm, I'm gonna push, gonna push the fact that I'm not a straight white guy. Yeah, good. Like as much as possible, yeah. I mean. It's, what's that saying? Be yourself, everyone else is taken. Yeah, yeah, right. And it, it's, it's harder though when you're a person a, of colour, isn't it? I think so. Because like, I relate a bit to that. I'm of, I'm, I never know how to describe myself. I, so I started to say I'm black of mixed heritage. Okay. So my great grandma was white um, from Nottinghamshire, Yorkshire via Nottinghamshire. And my great granddad was from Barbados. Mm -hmm. His parents were enslaved. I think he was as well, potentially and ran away from the plantation and changed his name and everything. Right. Went all around the place and then settled in uh, rural Nottinghamshire. Yeah. And um, yeah, that married my great grandma, had my grandma and like, my, my father and grandfather are Ghanaian, but um, I don't know my father and my, my grandfather died before I was born. I didn't really know him either. Mm -hmm. um, so I have Darko as a surname, which is Ghanaian. Um, Leafia comes from the English Bayesian side of my family. Right. My twin's name as well, Alice, she's named after our white English great-grandma. Okay. Um, and our culture has been a really interesting one, because I used to have this dilemma, in especially, you know, in classical music, when you like watch the proms, there's like no one who looks oh, like you God, ever. Yeah. It's yeah. like the word, it's, because you kind of go, because what I used to think is that uh, talent was inextricably linked to whiteness. Mm. It's difficult it like not a, to get he, that message. Yeah, it's like, oh, so if I'm elite, I'll never quite be as elite as a white person because there's just a genetic thing right. that that melanin has or something that means yeah. you you can't quite 
be as good as a white person maybe otherwise there would be people of color on sure. the proms and like right when you're and they're young, on. you don't understand gatekeepers yeah and you don't, you don't know history and like yeah. colorism and racism all this different sort of stuff and so then i was like maybe if i practice hard enough i'll walk into a room one day you know in, in a classical context and people go wow you're so good that you know you can you're, be white yeah you're always <laughs> as good you're so good that we'll treat you like a white person it's, yeah. it's really funny because like in your juvenile state you do know what the 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 discrepancy is and that there's an inequality but you don't necessarily have like the words yeah, to totally. articulate your experience or feedback to people or the confidence or the, you know the courage to do it not that you should have to but um but yeah I definitely remember thinking when I practiced the violin like sort of working myself to the bone sometimes because I'm like well I either have to be so good that people perceive a whiteness in my playing which was the only way I knew how to say a, a, a higher quality mm -hmm. right um or I have to be so good that people make an exception for my blackness, right. which was another thing. Obviously, both those things are really poisonous, toxic ideas. Yeah. But all, all your teachers are white. All the people on the proms are white. All the people in the classical album covers are white. Yeah. All the um, composers you, whose music you play are white and male. Um, all the conductors are white and male. Yeah. And like, so then you go, what there's, it's hard to understand that there is a si system that means over time people have deliberately created that. Yeah, environment exactly. you just yeah, think yeah. that there must be then this some, is the way the world is yeah, so there must be a reason the, the reason can't just be because people don't like brown people yeah, very right. much <laughs> even though that's really simple you 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 have to come up with some something that feels a little less um uh, engineered but, but also really like if you do acknowledge that it's because uh of racism essentially like that's, mm. that's the simple way of saying that then you have to acknowledge that you are going to have to always fight that. You have to yeah. acknowledge that your life is going to be harder mm -hmm. because of it. And that's a really tricky thing to... I remember my, I remember my dad, uh, like I was, me and my sister were young. Um, and I remember my dad saying to us, you know, you're going to have to be twice as good to get half as far yeah, because of the colour of your skin. Yeah. And like, I, obviously we were, I think we were too young to understand, but we were like, oh, okay, that sounds bad. And then like, so I remember him saying that and then my mum, like sneak this way I remember it again, I don't know if this is true, this is the way I remember it. Him saying that and, and leaving thinking like, well, I've told them the truth. And then my mum sneaking in saying to my sister, and you're gonna have to be twice as good again because mm. you're a woman. And like, that was a really early lesson in mm. privilege and lack of privilege. Yeah. But it's a hard lesson to actually take in and like live with. Because that's, like the game is rigged against you from the start. And I know it sounds like, this is a thing that I, because I, I talk about this a lot. There's a real danger of just being like, oh, poor me all the time. Because, but like, you have to say it again and again and again and again and again. Because people who don't live it can accept that it's happening. Like, again, yeah, that's, that's a dreadful thing. And then get on with their day. But it's like, no, no, you have to, you have to constantly fight this. Like this is a yeah. responsibility that we all have, even if you are a straight white man. Like, yeah. which is, you know, society is made for you. You have to fight against. It's your it as job well. to dismantle it. Yeah, the system like, is made for you by people who look like you yeah. for your benefit. So the, really, we the only people, yeah, who can dismantle it, yeah, are straight white men. Really, with the, the biggest. Um, the burden falls on, I guess, the people who the system benefits the most. Yeah. Is fair. Is they fair have to thing, right? try and dismantle the thing that keeps them in power. 
Yeah. Which is, you know, that's, that's a <laughs> big thing. deal. Yeah. It's a, it's, yeah, it's a mood. It's a mood. It's a mood. <laughs> but not as big a mood as being a person of colour, just trying to, like, make your way, you know? Yeah, yeah, it's like trying a constant to, struggle for us yeah. to just exist in yes. the world at a level where we feel like yeah. we're being heard. Yeah. Um, and, like, why did I even start that whole class? Oh, yeah, I remember it's because you were saying about you're culturally white and stuff like mm-hmm. this, or that that's how you felt you, as a result of your upbringing, you became, or you, relative to the eyes of the world or something. And that's something I've always struggled with because I, I, I don't speak any Ghanaian languages at all. Yeah. No one in my family does. Everyone right. in my family has this accent because yeah. it's literally our mother tongue. And it, uh, it's the men in my family who are from Barbados and Ghana mm-hmm. who, who, you know, I've never, I've never known. Um, and all the things culturally that like resonate with me are inevitably things like, you know, um, I don't know, fish and chips and um, fray bentos pies and, yeah. <laughs> you know, all those, all those stuff, like that kind of stuff and it being really just cold and grey is a happy place for me. Sure. And like, you know, I'm really bad with heat and all this stuff. And um, it's really like, I always found myself really hard to place as a kid because I'm like, I felt a real... Like, when, when, when I'd be with other black children, they'd have, like, a back home, quote-unquote, that they would talk right. about and go to a lot. Yep. Whether it was Jamaica or Nigeria or whatever, they were like, oh... They, like, summer holidays would come, and it's not like they were going to a five-star hotel or anything, not at all. Um, they'd go to, like, an aunt's house, sort of sleeping on the floor or, like, yeah. Yeah. top and tail with their cousins or whatever, spend the whole six weeks in that back home place. They'd have grandparents who were culturally in that place and yeah. of that place and blah 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 then they would come back to the uk and they were very much i am british nigerian or i am sure. british Ghanaian or british jamaica or whatever whereas we've always been like we've literally never been to ghana we've, my, my grandma's like about to be 85 she's never been to barbados where yeah. her father was from um so we don't really day to day our truth isn't that we were raised in any culture that wasn't english not consciously because anyone was trying not to, but because yeah, the yeah, people exactly. whose truth it was weren't in our lives. Yeah. But obviously, I'm a highly melanated person, mm-hmm. and I've always found that really complicated because I can't really join in conversations about a back home that yeah. isn't rural Nottinghamshire or something like that. Yeah. Um, and at the same time, my experience as an English person is being the other or being perceived as the foreigner that's by exactly. white English people yeah, yeah, exactly. who think they have a monopoly on what Englishness is. Yeah. And I've, I've often found myself in my life in really odd situations with people who are white and identify as English, but actually their heritage is that, like their granddad is like white and Czech and mm-hmm. their, their grandma is white and Swedish and their dad is white and Italian. But and but Yeah, but they go, I'm English. And then they'll, they'll say things like, they'll explain English traditions to me. Yeah, or yeah, compliment yeah. me on my accent. Or go, well, it's all right for, for us, you know, being English. But, like, if you're an immigrant, I'm like, oh, actually, that's not my story. Mm-hmm. And I genetically am, actually, part white English. And they genetically are not white English at all. They're just white. White, yeah. But if you're white, you, you get to define yourself and have people respect the definition of yourself. And like you, you can decide whatever your your culture is, like whatever the truth of your culture is, is acceptable as whiteness, That's exactly right? right? And and even if you're white and you grow up somewhere like Africa or India or whatever, you can be like I'm white, and your culture can involve 
whatever was around you and people go sure I, I buy that yeah. and so I always found what, what I've come to understand recently is like race and culture are different things yeah. and sometimes they can you can they can have things in common with each other or your upbringing can can mean there's some overlap there and sometimes not especially if you're of mixed heritage or from a mixed race family um, and that actually I used to feel really bad because often I when I was a kid, white people would compliment me and my sister by saying, you're the whitest black people we've ever met. Oh. Or like, it's like vomit-inducing things now. But when we were a kid, it was like loads of people would be like, oh, that's so good. You know, but you're not you guys, because you're really quite white, as if being that's compliment, a, that, that's a compliment. I've got like, exactly <laughs> the same thing. So I have like, uh, when I was pushing away my brownness, I remember one of my friends literally saying, oh, I, I forget that you're brown as well. And I, at the time felt like a little rush of pride, a little like, wow, oh, great. <laughs> and then a couple of years ago, one of my friends uh, said a really similar thing and I just stopped. I was like, no, 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 you can't, no. And like we had this whole conversation where I was like, and it, that, that change in me from feeling like whiteness was a thing that I needed to aspire to, mm. to actually, no, I'm not white. And even if you forget, the rest of the world will not. Doesn't. And there's certain spaces that they absolutely... Oh, man. I, last year, I think, I went to the opera with my then-girlfriend, who's, like, uh, a white girl. Uh, <laughs> and we went to this opera, and I don't like opera. <laughs> so she took me in a kind of, like, come on, we'll go to the opera, and, like, this one, you might like it, come on. Uh, and I was waiting for her, and three, three, at different points, three... Uh, elderly white people put their hands on me to move me out of the way. Oh, that's the worst fucking thing. And I hate it when that happens. By the time she turned up, by the time my girlfriend turned up, I was fuming. And I had to explain to her, this space was never meant for me to be in. Like, mm -hmm. this space is not for me. And people know it. And so they feel like they can mm -hmm. just, just push me out of the way. I don't belong here. So there's certain spaces that I will always be a brown person in, mm -hmm. no matter what is happening. Mm. Um, like, even if I, I was in the opera thinking, like, I could have, I could have composed something like this. You know, I could yeah. be a composer and this could be, and you would still push me out of the way. Oh, yeah. <sighs> just, yeah. just. I'm sure it happens to, you know, like Michelle Obama or something. I bet, I bet. Absolutely. Every single day. Yeah. <laughs> like she's, yeah. She, you, it's the in this, it, there's nothing that can extricate you from the system. Yeah. And you there know, are nothing. certain things, like the classical world, I'm sure, is exactly the same. Um, it's something that I haven't really dipped my toe in that much. But I imagine, you know, it's, it's a super white place yeah. where whiteness is, is held in high regard. Yeah. And it's very, it's sort of, now there's a, this really brilliant orchestra called Chinike and it's all black and minority ethnic artists mm. in this in this orchestra and they all play in other orchestras as well often um, or they're at the conservatoires or whatever and then they come together as an orchestra as well a professional orchestra and do stuff and I've, I've seen them before um, live and that was so gratifying and often they have a black conductor as well and like right. pieces co um, composed by black people people of colour that sort of thing and it's it's like so like oh if I'd seen this when I was seven 
that may have actually made a huge difference yeah. than what I, I think went it is and going did. Back and to like the problems this yeah. year had a lot of people of colour doing stuff. Yeah. Or I say a lot, some, to, which feels like a lot. There was a face at some yeah, point, and that's something. Feels like yeah. a lot. Yeah. And I went to um, I went to a thing last year called Compose Her, which had it was just for women composers. Some of them were people of colour, and it was just like you've got yeah. women and women of colour doing. And it was packed. It was sold out, mm. and it was just like okay. It feels like people are talking about it, which mm, is like yeah. a huge step. Yes, and like the the, the gratifying thing about this Chinooka concert, it was they were open. I think this is what it was. They would be opening Queen Elizabeth Hall mm-hmm. at the. Um, I didn't actually know this when I booked the concert. I just booked it because I could sort of go, and the tickets were actually relatively cheap. I don't think yeah. I paid more than like fifteen quid or something. Right. Maybe like nine or ten with a student card at the time um and um it turned out to be the first concert in the queen elizabeth hall is it whatever that whatever that venue is called at the south bank center yeah Yeah. um and so chinike were doing it and the audience was like so diverse it's more diverse than pretty much any theater audience i've ever performed to really yeah 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 And, and something started to occur to me which was that actually in terms of like what I what I identify my culture as, and often the guilt I've, and confusion I felt about it, mm-hmm. um, comes from a very white gaze, yeah. and the sort of desire that I've always felt this pressure to to define myself in a way that white people find palatable, um, oh, or Christ, you know, yes. or like <laughs> yeah, or some or that they can understand or that doesn't frighten them. Yeah. And what I realised at this Chinook, yeah, yeah, exactly. And what I realised at this Chinook concert was that. Actually, classical music is a black thing. Right. Right? If, if, if all the artists on stage are black, the conductor's black, they're playing work by black people, or sometimes like Chinookay did a Sibelius thing because Finlandia is the national anthem to an indigenously black country. I can't remember which one okay. now, um, which I didn't know. No, no. But I'm like, and then you look out into the audience and there were black people and black people dressed up, you know, mm-hmm. like black people going, I'm going to see a classical music concert yep. today and not one or two, like more than so many. It was just, there's no point counting. Whereas normally at the theatre, I count because I oh, just, I just need to count. Um, but like so many, I was just like, oh man, I can breathe easy. And um, I was like, well, actually what, what blackness is, is for me to define as a black person. You know, we're not a homogenous brown blur, mm-hmm. you know, people of colour. We have, like, our own specific identities and everything like that. And actually, if my truth is about doing music and it, the truth of my background is having come up through classical music and whatever, that's a black thing to do. Because it sort of occurred to me that actually white people never do this. White people don't go, oh, let me leave that blues alone because it's black people music and I'm not black. That literally is a thing that white people have never said in all of space and time. Every white guy with an electric guitar is like, I love, you know, B.B. King and I love whatever. Like no one is, no one's going, oh, but this is a culturally black thing to do Mm. and I'm a white person, let me not touch this. Let me not touch jazz. White people don't do this, right? White people self-define what their culture is. Do you know what I mean? And I feel like the pressure that we felt is because we were never told as brown people that we were allowed to define ourselves. We've been raised in a world that tells us we have to be defined by white people and accept that definition and so live down to it, live up to it, live around it, that like, but not only That's true, and it goes it. in and you start judging yourself yeah. by that. The thing about audiences is, 
that's such a big thing for me. Like here, when we when we do stuff at the San Monica, I I look out and I always <laughs> look. I oh yeah, I do. I really do. Yeah, I really do. And I last do. year I went on tour with Erasure, like the eighties pop band. <laughs> uh, Great. And every night, so it was like a European tour, uh, really kind of big venues. Um, I think I saw three people of color the entire time. It was like a month and a half long tour, mm-hmm. and it was crazy because there were more people of color on stage. Uh, than there were in the audience because Erasure had two black backing singers and I was on stage <laughs> and it was just like this like it's no it's no slur on Erasure it's not Erasure's fault it's just like why what what is happening here like why is this a thing and it that's like that's electro pop there's no yeah. there's no mm. barrier to that there's no mm. but it happens like when I when I go and do any kind of music. Yeah. Have I you, look out in the audience and I count. Yeah. Have you have you ever been to Glastonbury? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That well, is a few times. That that's... is not a diverse place no, no. to be. And that's so weird because the artists on stage often increasingly so. Yeah. And especially increasingly so with the from a headlining perspective are diverse, but I worked that festival in 2010 which was the year Beyoncé played it. Yeah. So I saw we turned we were literally there for like 3 weeks and I went um, before I went to drama school, it was like an acting project with the Roundhouse had like an outreach program, and we devised a piece of work to take to to Glastonbury. Because for those of you that don't know, they have all of these completely wacky fields that mm. after the music is done, they stay open till like six o'clock in the morning or whatever. Yeah. And there's all sorts of like circus stuff going on and all sorts of things. And so we had a little uh, thing we devised that we we took there, and we got a pass for literally three weeks, like a staff pass. So we. Um, saw the get in uh, we could go anywhere we wanted in the day at night we did our little show and so we attended the whole festival for free and then we saw the get out so I saw the whole thing and it's just not I was it's not diverse and in fact what I saw BB King there Mm -hmm. which I don't think at the time I could really appreciate um, how crazy an opportunity that was he died like maybe three or so years later or something Mm -hmm. and I remember thinking can can I should I go BB King, like I hear, um, I hear good things. About I hear this good BB things, King. you know. And I feel like, I feel like, will it be something I tell my grandkids? And I rocked up, and I was there so early, I got to be right on the front yeah. barrier. Like, it felt like I was like a foot away from him or something like that. And I was like, oh wow, really cool. Um, but yeah, no, it's a very, a very, it was a very white place to be. It's Ireland, and it, it is, and and even for Beyonce. Yeah. Like I say, when she had so, really, it was so, and I was like, what is it about Glastonbury that people of colour don't want to thing. So last to... year I played 10 or 12 festivals. I, I sessioned for a lot of bands, so we, mm. we played lots and lots of festivals. Um, and <laughs> everyone in the band got, just got bored of me kind of being like, it's very, it's very white here, isn't it? Because like, every, <laughs> so like they're, they're white bands, yeah. so it's, it's very white here, isn't it? But we played at a festival, I uh, can't even remember which one now. And it's funny to say Beyonce because Solange was playing, mm. uh, and I'm kind of obsessed with mm. um, the first Solange album. She's Not done some great album, sorry, stuff, um, hasn't she? The table. I just, yeah. I'm obsessed with She's it. She's great. So I went to see that. Um, it was on after our gig, so we did our gig, and then I ran over to the stage and was just like, right, I'm here for this. And she did a thing that, it was a very white festival, like every, almost every Which one was white. this again? I can't remember what one it was now. I can't remember what festival it was. Um, it's one of the big ones, but I, I can't remember. Um, and she did this thing where she came out to the audience, 
and she picked out the people of colour in the audience and just went up to them and held their hand <laughs> while singing at them. And I've rarely been as emotional That's in so cool. a thing. At one point, she went up and she went to grab this um, black woman's hand and a white woman <laughs> stuck her hand up to try and grab her and she very gently but very firmly battered it out of the way and grabbed this black woman's hand and sang yeah, a this line is, at her. Yeah, this moment is not for you. I think you. it's during you the song, this, this is not for you. Oh, but really? She's is got that a song. song called This yeah. Is Not For You? Well, she's got a song where like, the repeated lyric is, this, this is, is not for you. you. You've That's got everything in the world, this is not for you, this one's for us. Yeah. And she literally just battered a white woman's hand out of the way and grabbed this black woman's hand and sang a hat. And I freaked. I burst into tears like Aww. an absolute lunatic. Um, yeah, it was yeah. incredible. Oh, that's, oh, God, that sounds great. I need to go see Solange live. Oh, you should, because like, she's phenomenal. Yeah. yeah, she's the Noel sister that I... <laughs> not that we compare. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Um, but yeah, festivals are white places. Mm, they are. They are. It's, and it's I don't know whether weird. it's like a socioeconomic thing. I, as well. I genuinely think like Glastonbury. After I met, I was like, oh, I'd love to come back. And I thought the tickets might be like 70 quid or something. Uh, yeah, and then yeah. I was like, what is this 200 yeah. and whatever? Like, Jesus Christ. I only go to festivals if I'm playing because. Yeah. Because how, how can you do that? And then, you know, also there is a thing where one thing that did stress me out is like black hair needs a lot of like care, like daily. Yeah. And like living in a muddy field in a tent is not oh, the yeah, place you no, can no, do that. And obviously, none of the tents, because there were lots of them that like go, this is a little spa treatment or whatever. None of that is designed for black skin or black hair. Oh, no, so, no. <laughs> so that was a thing I realised. I got there and I was like, I've got three and a half weeks without any way, really, of looking after my hair, looking after like. <sighs> My skin, and I was like, yeah, that that's a thing, you know, yeah, it's actually. Not like, it's that's, not that's that thing of, like, yeah. this part of society is not built for us. Literally. Like, yeah. Yeah, is, it was, and so that was an, an aspect of it as well. Um, and at the same time, I was like, it felt like such a shame because the music was great mm. and the, that, there was something about the atmosphere that was quite carnival, like normal societal rules didn't apply yeah, in a way right. that felt uh, a sort of really fun and really freeing like people sort of were wearing whatever they wanted and yeah. like there was a sort of joy to it and i discovered it was the where i that i heard the i stumbled across the 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 kills mm -hmm. by accident fell in love with them hearing them play live and like that's a band i always have now on my spotify or whatever and, right. I've, and it's just i have a lot of lovely memories but i my awesome also a big memory was like it was the one of the whitest places i've ever been like was it 200,000 people? Am I making that uh, up? No, that, that it sounds about like right. It might be right. Yeah, oh, like, see, it's big. It's, it's, I don't big. Know. it's, it's huge. About, like, huge. It becomes, and like, as big as cities or, yeah. like, towns. And, yeah, I, yeah. and I really, really question if there are even a thousand people of colour yeah. there. But and there's I a whole lot of cultural appropriation that goes oh, on. Oh, a ton. Like because it's banned. It's like, uh, you know, I think if you look at the Billboard Top 100 or, or you know, um, when we were kids, top of the pops, sure. <laughs> um, or like you know, whatever the Spotify top chart is, the number of white artists who make a lot of money at, off of black culture, Latinx culture, mm -hmm. various indigenous cultures who don't really have any part of that heritage themselves, but yeah. are put it in to their their music, whether it's like a an Afrobeat thing, a reggae thing, some sort of indigenous instrument somewhere along Sometimes the line. The imaging, the styling. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the sort of it's it's yeah, it's very and 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 I think it's particularly stands out to me when then when a big societal moment happens in which 
there's a big story where people of colour are, um, I mean, sure, like we said earlier, it's an everyday thing, but when there's a big moment where a person of colour is um, come up against the system and is being squashed by it, mm-hmm. all those people are really super silent and they've all made like $30 yeah. million dollars the previous year off of black Latinx or yeah, Latin black in, culture. indigenous culture or whatever. But when there's been a political thing that happens or whatever, the and maybe, who knows, maybe behind the scenes, to be fair, maybe they've set up a foundation or helping right, someone right. and not to, I mean, that's perfectly with their right to do it. But I think there is also something about the public visibility of standing up for the people whose culture you really are, yeah. literally buying mul- like multiple mansions off of. Um, and the visi- this, it's the visibility is hugely powerful. Yeah, of, definitely. And that's sometimes I've missed that when I'm like, that's an R&B piece, or that's a reggae beat, or that's a Bangra beat, or that's, you know, yeah. um, and you've gone and got a gospel choir to sing all the backing tracks because you know full well what you're doing is black music and that you need black voices to be in the background to give that some sort of strength and authenticity. But like next week, if there's like some police incident or something like that, are you gonna put a statement going, you know, I stand with the black community and like, uh, no, kind of my perception anyway is that that doesn't really happen. And I find that to be quite a painful bit. Allies when it's, uh, when it's beneficial. Yeah, Especially and that like makes me really financially sad. Financially beneficial. Yeah. That's, that's yeah, definitely a thing. And it's, yeah. I, I think it's really complicated. I mean, I, I, being, I'm part white, but have the, the my great-grandma died in the 60s. So by the time I was born, we were all black English, essentially, mm. and I, I never met her. But growing up in a house with a white mum, I can imagine that's really complicated because I feel that there's a complication to it, even though I'm not immediately around the white people that I'm blood relatives right. of all yeah. the time on a daily basis. I feel sometimes I kind of like, this is so complicated because you had a hand in making me in some way. Um, or people, do you, I, you know, do you yeah, know what I'm trying yeah, to say? Yeah, I do, like, I do. There's, I mean, it's all about like uh, power dynamics and privilege. I mean, it, it is all, you know, and I'm a straight man, so I have a ridiculous amount of privilege. So I decided, Two years ago, maybe two years ago, that I was going to never session for a band that was just straight white men. Just decided, I, it's not that they don't have anything to say, it's just that I've heard it so many times. And there are so many other voices out there. Mm-hmm. Like, so I just, I was like, yeah, okay, I'm, I'm not gonna do it. And I went through life for the last two years thinking that I'd made that decision. Uh, it turns out I'm an idiot. I'm an idiot that thinks he's in control of his own life. Because what actually <laughs> happened was, I've only turned down one band that wanted me to play for them that was all straight white men. Um, what's actually happened is, and I play for like five or six different bands and they're all female fronted, or gay, or um, not white. Like that's, mm-hmm. or a combination of those three mm-hmm. things. Um, and what happened was, I had started playing for one woman and then she recommended me to another woman, and it just, people who were already marginalized were much more likely to ask me to session for them than a non-marginalized person. And it was the thing that you just said, it was when you are yourself marginalized, you see in other people and you're more willing to give them a chance. Mm-hmm. And because I'm just an arrogant person who thinks he's in control of his own life, I was like, <laughs> I've chosen this. I've chosen, I've chosen, because I'm a very good person, I've chosen to uh, only play for people who aren't straight white men. That's not what happened. 
and it blew my mind that because what, what actually happened was other marginalized people saw me and were like, oh, we'll give that guy a chance mm. because he doesn't get the chances that other people get. But it's probably it was probably fifty percent you as well. It was probably like fifty percent you going, I know as an artist what work I want to make because I have these values, and it was fifty percent then being open to. Uh, or probably 100% you because you made the because in in deciding what you didn't want to do you also decided what you would say yes to yeah sure yeah but the fact that I'd only actually ended up turning one band down mm. and you know I'd said yes to everything else <laughs> makes me think oh, God, where were yeah, the offers was, coming from in the first place yeah and, yeah and the offers were coming from people who were already I mean marginalised but already like struggling to uh raise their head above the power mm. and be like, hey, I'm here as well. Because just recently there was that thing about Transmit Festival, just not having any women on its festival lineup, and the, mm. the guy who runs it just being like, wow, the problem is, you see, we need women to pick up guitars and make music. It's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> I love those That's songs. not what the problem is. Yeah, like, there is talent doing stuff. There is a load of really super talented women making mm-hmm. incredible music. What's happening is you're not backing them. Yeah. Like, you're looking at that the wrong way around. Yeah. One of my friends uh, is... She's brilliant. <laughs> anyway, that's irrelevant. She um, she just tweeted, like, there isn't... What did she say? There isn't a talent gap. There's a gatekeeper gap. Yeah, yeah. And that just... That's a great tweet. Is, yeah, it's a good tweet. Like, it's it's a good, that is a good tweet. Yeah, yeah. yeah. She's, she's Do you think she'll notice if I, like, just suddenly tweet that and, like... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is my thing. <laughs> what a coincidence yeah, that you always tweet that. But yeah, no, I, I hear, yeah, I feel, it's, it's, um, in like, um, on the, on the classical side of things, <clears throat> what I found, or what I, how to put this, so what, what I found was really interesting, and like, that it's always the case that there are people of colour out there with talent, which is how, Chinike has happened, there's enough right. people of colour playing like the core anglais to an elite level, yeah. but you can, you know, the timpani, like you can make an orchestra yeah. um, uh, out of euphonium players of colour. <laughs> um, um, but there was also something that I've become increasingly aware of, especially having gone to drama school and having um, gone to RADA, because each time I've done it on bursaries and scholarships. Yeah. And what I've realised is that it's meant that I get to do jobs like here at the Globe, and it meant that I got to... It, I went to like a shitty state comp and you know they didn't really do anything with us there and everything like that and what I did on a Saturday at Junior Conservatoire as much as now I'm going sort of reassessing who I want to be as an artist especially on the musical side of things Mm. um, the things we did there were like life changing in that it was like people going things like you can do anything and you know you you can be elite which I didn't know as a black working class female that I could even like I had this idea that I genetically was incapable of doing it right sure. so and and inevitably there was a lot of value I got from that as a person as well as like a young musician but what I realized or what I've come to realize as an adult is that because there, there were a lot of kids there that were amazing very young mm-hmm. um, and I always put that down to just natural talent natural talent but what I realize is that actually if you're born with a sort of basic level of musicianship and come from a, a certain resource standpoint right yeah um you can sort of develop that skill to 
a level that means by the time you're 12, other 12-year-olds simply can't compete with you. Right. So then what I realise is that people conflate um, ethnicity with um, a systemic and chronic lack of opportunity. Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> like, I, I don't necessarily believe in talent. Like, I, no. I don't... I think talent's what people use to explain a work ethic that they find inexplicable often. Yes! Oh, God, I'm so glad you said that. So, I, <laughs> <laughs> I don't believe in talent, I believe in opportunity, and I believe in, uh, like, when I first started doing music, I had the opportunity. So, I had parents who could afford to buy me a guitar. Mm. I had a piano in the house. Like, mm -hmm. that is not a thing that everyone has. Mm. So, I had opportunity. And I had ridiculous self-belief, like, verging on oh. arrogance, that I was going to be a musician and that I, I could do it. Mm. So I'm sure I made horrific noises for like the first two years of playing guitar. My parents put up with it and I thought I was great. So I just carried on doing it. I put in a lot of work to become good. Mm -hmm. I don't think there's such a thing as like raw talent. Just like, oh, I'm just, I'm very good at music, mm. so it's fine. I think it is opportunity and a single, like a single-mindedness yeah. to just get it done and then you put in your whatever it is 10,000 hours or yeah. whatever and it doesn't feel like work no and I think yeah I think talent is sometimes very often in fact used by people who aren't who haven't put in the time and effort to be like oh well it's something mystical like it's something like torture genius is one of my least favourite phrases in the English language what? Torture, torture genius, genius. <laughs> like I hate I hate it so much I think it is detrimental to for mental health i think yes it's, I, it, think so. I think it is is because people see it as like this romantic thing of like well you know if you're going to be a genius you're going to be sad like no. yeah and also sort of focused on things that aren't about the work yeah like oh the the reason like um and i'm not saying that this i feel this is very different to people who genuinely have issues with like alcoholism or whatever mm -hmm. but i really challenge the idea that frankly anything like a Anything that doesn't resemble a monk-like devotion to whatever it is you want to be yep. good at is it's making you good. Than, like yeah. anything that's like, well, I just need to get drunk and then not warm up and just go on stage and do it. And mm. there's no, like, I really question if that's making you good or whether you're good in spite of that behavior. Or, or also this thing that really gets me. It's the one, maybe coming from classical guitar, this is a hard thing to accept. Mm. People who like smash instruments up, sure. in a, especially coming from a background where it's so hard to get instruments because people can't afford right. them or whatever. Smashing up like really great guitars yeah. is like a thing that I'm like, oh, shit. That's a thing that I used to think was really cool when I was a kid. So I remember, like Kurt Cobain used to do it with an Havana all the time, mm. but they used to go out to like thrift stores beforehand buy the cheapest guitar. Okay. And like, <laughs> they would have that guitar as the one they smashed up. up that, the last that's time. a really, because I'm thinking like, how are you taking like $4,000 guitars? Yeah, right? and like, but then people do do that. Like this is Hendrix true. did it, The Who did it all the time. And like, as a kid, I was like, oh, that's so punk rock. I am so into that. How and many guitars? now I'm How just like, don't stop doing that. Yeah. Like, people, like, give it to someone. Yes, give it thank to you. Someone. There's a child someone somewhere that. Yeah. that could, in 10 or 50 years' time, just do amazing things because yeah. you gave them your worst guitar. Exactly. Do you like, know what I mean? If you don't want that guitar, yeah. you're not impressing <laughs> anyone by destroying it. Give it to someone in the crowd who looks like they want it. Like, the, the, that's cool. like, yeah. Or oh, donate it to like a charity. There are so many charities yeah. like giving music to kids who don't mm. have the opportunity. Like just do yeah. that. And I'm sure that I'm trying to think of the devil's playing devil's advocate. I'm trying to think of a reason why that's done. You know, artistic and sort of political things about why that yeah. might be done. Yeah. But 
to be honest, as a kid who kind of come, came from a really working class background, my first thing is like, <laughs> like, yeah. like when I see it, because I'm like, the guitar, I could have done that. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Speaking about like privilege, I think we were relatively talented kids, especially my, my twin. My twin's my hero. And like part of the reason I feel I'm so musical is because she is like a genius with with things. She's more badass than me in every kind of sense. Of the word. Like I'm like when I was talking about the anecdote about the piano, mm-hmm. like it was completely legitimate. She was genuinely like doing crazy cool things on the piano. But what I think my parents didn't understand is that it, to get a kid to be good enough to do like BBC Young Musician at sixteen, what you're not really doing is throwing mud at the wall and seeing what sticks. You go, this person is the be- has made their life. Um, they, their thing isn't that they wanted to be a composer or an arranger or a concert soloist mm-hmm. or, or, or a professor of that instrument. Their, their thing was like, their vocation was, I want to be known as the leading teacher of um, cello right. to under sixes in the country. And you go to that person who is probably very expensive and mm. that person teaches your kid. They then hand you off to someone and go, you would suit this person because they were taught by so-and-so who was taught at the Russian conservatoire, whatever, by so-and-so. Do you know what I mean? This then they, literally, yeah, it's like, thing, it's like a martial art thing in classical yeah, music, right. almost like you have a sensei kind of relationship with the teacher. And that's where I feel like when, I, when people are like, we need the best person for the job. I always think that, but maybe the best person for the job is someone who has not had the opportunity mm-hmm to add a sort of a technical training or a, some sort of yeah. training to the natural ability they have. Yeah. And you could be the person that like unlocks that for them. Yeah. And so maybe there's an opportunity to have two spaces, one for someone who comes to you very polished and one for someone who has a ton of natural talent but has just never had the opportunity. And yeah. I reckon if that was a philosophy that was employed in every industry, the diversity would increase exponentially because there's so much untapped talent that thing is like the best person for the job they often don't mean the best person for the job they often mean the easiest to integrate yeah that is so true so it's just like oh and that's just always the person that looks like you the person that looks like you and you can talk to as if they're just like you Mm -hmm. and because the people in charge are straight white men they're the people who get pulled through it's just whoever is easiest to fit into the culture of the place that you're in. Mm. And if you're in charge of the culture, why would you not choose someone who's exactly like you? And that's where yeah. this whole thing like happens. And that's why, you know, again, it needs to be the people at the top of the pyramid who are also chiseling away at the pyramid from the top. And that's a hard thing to persuade people to do. Mm. It's yeah. hard to... Pers- it's hard to to sell the, the, the payoff yeah. of the, the diversity isn't a charitable act. Yeah. It's... Um, or to convince people at the top of the pyramid that, okay, you, you might have struggled to get where you are, that I'm not trying to take that away from yeah. you, but also you have had so many more legs up than I think yes. maybe you realise. Yeah. And it's, it's not a charitable act. Yeah. It, it's that it's such a financially viable thing to do and like yeah if you open up that pool to more people yeah whatever the industry you're in cannot help but benefit from yeah. having more people from maybe different backgrounds adding to the yeah. stories the more diverse any kind of project is the more robust it is the more interesting it is exactly. yeah the more people it talks to
And that's it for this month's episode of the London Rep Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to follow our guest, Jay, um, he's on Twitter and Instagram. On Twitter, he is the Jay Chakravorty. That is the J C H A K R A V O R T Y. And on Instagram, he is at J Chakravorty. J C H A K R A V O R T Y. Um, and that's J as in the letter, not not his name spelled with full. Okay, so at the J Chakravorty on Twitter and at J Chakravorty on Instagram. Go check him out, show him some love, support him. His album comes out next year, so um, I'm sure you'll agree with me. We're all looking forward to that. Um, if you'd like to follow the London Rep, keep up to date with what we've got coming up. We've got lots of exciting things coming your way in 2020. Um, we are at the London Rep across all social media platforms. Um, thank you very much for, for listening and we'll see you next time. <laughs>